All right, we're in First Chronicles. I, I have prepared a beautiful slideshow for this morning um, with outlines and maps and all that, and it's on my thumb drive at home on my computer. <laughs> so we're going back to old-fashioned technology, but I don't really have any special over <coughs> slides for on the overhead for what we need, so you'll have to just kind of do it from memory here. Um, we're doing First Chronicles, and originally First and Second Chronicles were all one book. When were they split up? Septuagint. Yeah, when the Septuagint was translated a couple hundred years before Christ. Um, First and Second Chronicles are parallel to what books? Yeah, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, First Chronicles matches almost exactly the entire First and Second Samuel. It ends. First Chronicles ends where Second Samuel ends, and then the Second Chronicles covers all of Kings. Um, in our outline, which I have in front of me, but you don't, um, the first nine chapters are on what? Yeah, genealogies. <clears throat> And then the rest of the of the book of First Chronicles is all about one guy. Who's that? It says David. Yeah. Um, so last time we did through chapter seven, I wanted to pick up one little story from chapter seven, and then we'll go go forward. Um, in these first nine chapters, there there are just these occasional stories that just pop up, and. They're not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. And so there's no, we know nothing else about it. Last time we talked about the prayer of Jabez. We're not quite even sure who Jabez is as to whether he's the, father, the son or brother of one that came before. Um, and at this time, we know a little bit more about who these people are. This is in chapter 7, in verse 20. But... And, you, and I'm sure when you read it, you know, you thought, okay, yeah, interesting, maybe not. <laughs> but you'd be surprised what's really going on here. The sons of Ephraim, this is uh, chapter 7, verse 20. The sons of Ephraim were Shuthila and Bered his son, Teath his son, Eliada his son, Teath his son, uh, Zabad his son, Shuthila his son, and Ezer and Eliad, whom the men of Gath who were born in the land, killed because they came down to take their livestock. Their father Ephraim mourned many days, and his relatives came to comfort him. Then he went into his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Bariah because misfortune had come upon his house. Now, you read that, and you know you think, well, they were all the time going fighting the Philistines in Gath. I mean, what's the big deal? Um, and I hope you can see this. There's Gath. But now here's the question. Where are these guys who were trying to steal the livestock of the people in Gath? Where were they living? Well, Ephraim is a good guess because they're the sons of Ephraim. But where was Ephraim himself personally born? Egypt. He was born in Egypt. His father was Joseph. Where did Ephraim die? 
also in Egypt. Egypt yeah. <laughs> and this story happened while Ephraim was still alive. His sons went and tried to take some livestock from these people of Gath. Egypt's way off the map down here. I mean, I would love to know more about this story. What are they doing up there in Gath? You know, um, why didn't they stay in Egypt? Was this a was it some kind of a general uh, action on the part of you know Egyptians? Were they part of the Egyptian military at this point, or was this just some kind of a private raid? Um, that's the kind of story you have in here—just little things thrown in and. and you just get some hints that wow, there's a lot going on that we didn't know about. Can, yeah. Did, um, was this before the, um, the when they escaped from when God led them out of Egypt? Hundreds of years before that. Yeah, that's the thing that's so surprising. Yeah. So Joseph is still alive then? Huh? No, I'm not saying Joseph was alive. Joseph's son Ephraim was still alive. Yeah. So um, now, all right. So moving on into um, into chapter eight, then we have our our last genealogy in all of chronic. Well, not exactly. <laughs> um, Chronicles loves these lists, genealogies. Not all the lists in Chronicles are genealogies. Some of them are, are lists of other things, but. The, the writer just loves them. What other book or books in the Old Testament is similar to this? In terms of, a, of the writer that just loves lists of, and numbers Genesis, and things. Genesis, of course. That's well, Genesis doesn't have nearly as many, and it certainly doesn't have the numbers like this. Yeah. Ezra. Ezra, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally were one book, <laughs> and... They were probably written about the same time as First and Second Chronicles, and, and a lot of people think they're written by the same author. Even um, they're they're obviously designed to go together, and they have the same view, where they they spent a lot of time on lists of names, and everybody has their own interests. You know, some some people read these and and they think, wow, this is quite quite neat to have all these names, and, and other people, probably the majority. I'll read this and think, oh, not more of the same thing. But one of the things I think you'll notice as we read along uh, in in Chronicles is that these long lists of names, and sometimes they have they'll give the people's occupations, other things. It it changes the pace of the book, and it, it, it's a it, it, and it actually accomplishes a useful purpose in slowing things down at points where in Kings, telling the same story, it just kind of zipped right past. Uh, there'll be things in Kings that might have taken only a verse or so, and, and in Chronicles, they'll spend a whole chapter. Why a whole chapter? Because they got all these names to give you. And by the time you finish reading the chapter on names and think about it, you realize that you've that because the pace was slowed down, you had a chance to think a lot more about Something that, that the author of First Chronicles considered important for his purpose, even though the king's writer did for his purpose it didn't it wasn't that that big a deal. Okay, back to um, chapter eight here. We have our final genealogy of what tribe is this? Benjamin. Benjamin. 
And who's one of the more famous people from Benjamin? Saul. Yeah, Saul, the first king. And and the chapter actually ends with the genealogy of Saul. We come back to him again in chapter 9. Now chapter 9, for the most part, is not a genealogy. What is it? It's a list, but not genealogy. That's later, yeah. Wrong list. I can't imagine how you confuse these. Oh, this is... It's place in Moab, so... Yeah, that's the interesting thing. This list takes place after the last chapter of Second Chronicles. I mean, the last chapter of Second Chronicles has them going into captivity... And then I think at the very end they get to come back. This is right after that. This is the number of the people who actually were back, who came back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Um, as I mentioned last time, Chronicles goes a little bit farther in the history than Kings does. Kings stops about halfway through the seventy-year captivity. Chronicles goes goes right to the end, and, and these and these geneal- and some of the genealogies go. Quite a few years past the, the time they, they come back. But you have to read very carefully to understand that. But this one's very obvious. This is the number of the people that came back after the captivity. And, and one thing that stands out, and again, you know, mostly when we look at this, we say, I think I can read this really, really fast. <laughs> because we're not very interested. But one thing that does stand out are the, the sizes of the numbers. Um, and and if, you've, if you've got a New American Standard or most any modern version, the numbers will be in, in a nice digit, so you can just kind of scan down. And you see in verse 6 you have 690, verse 9 you've got 956, verse 13 you've got 1760. Are these big numbers or small numbers? They're very small. I mean, think back to, to the book of Numbers, <laughs> which, had, which numbered the people, how many were the total fighting people in, in either one of those numberings? 144. No, no, no. Wrong number. Well, it was about 600,000. Now, that was just the fighting men. The reason you're thinking of a million is that when you add the women and the children and all, you're going to get, you're going to get past a million. Um, but just the fighting men, and, and again, I think that's what's being numbered here. So we're, we're comparing apples and apples. you got over you got 600,000 and some men who left Egypt, 600,000 some men who went in with Joshua into the land, and now hundreds of years later, they've been taken captive, they've come back, and we've got little piddly numbers like 690 and 956, and, and you add the numbers up and you only have a few thousand people. Now that, and that's something that, that I think the Jews themselves gave a lot of thought to. What's happened to us? Well, what had happened to them is what the book of Chronicles tries to explain. The fact that they had been unfaithful to God, forgotten His laws, went after idols, and and God punished them. And part of the consequence of the punishment was that they were never as big as what they had been prior to this. All right, so then at the very end of chapter 9... Yeah, yeah, John. Uh, a great many of these Jews had been dispersed and chose not to come back. That's right. So, so, yeah. so that 
but we don't want to think that this represents all of the surviving Right, that's not all the surviving Jews. There, there were, in fact, even in the days of Jesus, there, there was a large Jewish population still in Babylon. Um, and, and in fact, they, they sent contributions to support the temple in the days of Jesus. Um, they, they actually had more money than the people who lived in Judah where, where the temple was. And, and so a, a lot of the financial support for the temple actually came from the Jews in Babylon. But when Jesus was there, the population was not anything like it had been back in the days of Joshua or, or especially David and Solomon. It just was not anything like it. Yeah, I was wondering if they, were, if they became Samaria, the people in Samaria, these Jews that didn't come back. No, no, they didn't. No, the Jews that didn't come back stayed Jews. They just stayed Jews over in Babylon. Yeah. Welcome. We're in, in book in First Chronicles. Uh, just almost ready for chapter ten now. Yeah. Oh. I, I was just thinking about you know you talking about those small numbers and uh, those were the population numbers as opposed to righteous Jews numbers. We have no number of righteous Jews. <laughs> Except when God said seven thousand. Yeah. How long he felt that at that one point. Yeah. So yeah, people. that's right. Um, yeah. Now, of course, Elijah was in the northern kingdom of Israel, and it had gone bad faster than the southern kingdom. And those people, after they got taken captive, they did not come back. Um, they uh, they just kind of got absorbed by wherever they went captive. We read of one or two people from those tribes later, but um, the tribe themselves just they never came back. All right, so at the end of chapter 9, then we have one last genealogy, and this is actually a repeat, almost verbatim. Uh, it's the genealogy of Saul. And why would we get the genealogy of Saul right at the end after we've already jumped all the way up to the population of Jerusalem after the captivity? Right, now we're going back, and now we're going to talk about the kings specifically. So we get the genealogy of Saul. And then in chapter 10... We get a story of Saul. What's the story? Him dying. Him <laughs> dying. <laughs> wow, he doesn't get much press in, in this book. Um, and that's another thing to keep in mind in, in Chronicles. In Chronicles, the key figure is David. And the whole rest of the book's on David. But even in Second Chronicles, which of course David's dead by the time we get to Second Chronicles, um, he's still a key figure in that the good kings are the ones who did things like David did. And the bad kings are the ones who didn't do things like David did. So we have this final battle, which we studied when we were doing uh, Samuel. Uh, but we'll, we'll look at it again. Uh, where was the battle fought? Well, Mount Gilboa. Yeah, yeah on Mount Gilboa. Which is, is it borders the valley of Jezreel, and that and that's the big flat area where they often have their battles. And, and the, who who was he fighting against? Philistines. Philistines. Yeah, Philistines are down this area here, and they travel up there to have the big battle. Apparently, they're trying instead of just beating up on the locals, people of Judah, they want to take the whole nation, and so they they pick the battleground for the center of the of the land, and then when they won, 
they pretty they had they pretty much controlled the whole land. And this was Saul's final scene. Um, and you remember the story about how the the um, archers found him and wounded him, and he was going to die anyway. And he wanted his armor bearer to kill him, but his armor bearer was scared to do that. So how did he end up dying? Yeah, fell on his sword. Jonathan and his other sons also died at the same time. Not all of them, but most of his sons died. And um, and then we had you know the, the way that Philistines disrespected his body, and who were the big heroes that um, showed respect for his remains? Yeah, the people of Jabesh Gilead. The story, of course, is not in Chronicles, but in Samuel we find out that Saul had originally rescued Jabesh Gilead when he first started as king. But what one thing new we have in Chronicles is in verses 13 and 14 when it summarizes and explains why Saul died. And this is not in, in um, Samuel, although in Samuel we, you know, we kind of pick it up as the story went. But he died in verse 13 for his trespass which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord which he did not keep. Now it doesn't tell us, but what was that word of the Lord that he didn't keep? That's a second one. Yeah, what? He didn't kill the king. Yeah, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Yeah, he, he, they spared the best of the cattle, all that. That was why he was rejected as king by God. But also, it says, because he asked counsel of a medium. Now, that was the night before he died, in fact. Uh, and in Samuel, we have the story about it because he wanted to know how the battle was going to end up and he couldn't find out any other way, so he went to a medium, which... It illustrates his view. At any time in his life, I think if you'd ask Saul, you know, do you love the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Oh, yes, I certainly am. Are you obeying the law of the Lord? Oh, yes. But he really was not a man of faith. And when it comes right down to it at the end, if God's not going to answer him the way, you know, by by using the high priest and the Urim and the Thummim and all that, he'll use a method that he knows full well God has forbidden he wants answers, and it doesn't matter if God's trying to stand in his way. And so that's and so when he's finally judged the next day, it's because of his sins. He just man was not a man of faith. And so now we begin David. These stories about David are not in chronological order. Um, so you have to watch. Even in today's reading, we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, the first thing we're going to do um, is in verse 1, all these were gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Um, now, prior to Saul's being killed, where was David staying? Uh, that was even earlier. I, I want the one right before. Yeah, he was staying with the Philistines and they gave him the, the city of Ziklag. Um, and you remember how he was going to fight on the side of the Philistines and... and they send him back wisely, I, I might say. Um, but after after um, Saul was dead, he asked God, and God said, "Go to Hebron." How long was he in Hebron? Yeah, yeah, seven and a half years, and then all Israel came to make him king. But in Chronicles, it's not mentioned. Seven and a half years is not even mentioned. We just jump immediately from Saul being killed. If you didn't have the story of Samuel, you'd think that chapter eleven happened you know, within a few weeks of chapter 10. But in fact, it was seven and a half years later and there was a civil war that went on in between. But that's just not important 
for the purposes of the of the chronicler. He's trying. He has certain themes in mind, and and so he just leaves out those seven and a half years. And, and they come and they they all Israel comes and appoints him to be king. And we're going to come back to that in another chapter. And then it goes to the fir- his first official act as king, at least in, in in the story of Chronicles, and that's in verse four. What is that? Yes, take Jerusalem. Up until this time, Jerusalem has been controlled by what tribe? Not not a Jebusites. not a Jewish tribe. The Jebusites. That's right. And you see, this is a map of of Israel in the days of Saul. And you see how it's got the Canaanites in pink here, and they go all the way up here to Jerusalem. That's because the Jebusites still control uh, this city that was a city of, that was it, it's and it was. It was Salem of the Jebusites, which originally, which which eventually turned into Jerusalem. Just kind of smoothing it out a little bit. David realized that 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 was the ideal location for his capital. It was right on the border between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, so that had an advantage to try to unify the, the tribes. And it, it was in a very secure place, up on a mountain, very hard to take. In fact, the Jebusites didn't think David could take it, but they got surprised. <laughs> yeah, Tracy. Is that where um, King of Salem lived in Jerusalem? Yes, Melchizedek, yes. Back in the days of Abraham, he, he was the king of that same place. Yeah. And a lot of water has gone under the bridge between those times, but yeah, it is. There's all these threads get drawn together in the, in the Bible, yeah. Um, and David made a promise whoever uh, strikes down a Jebusite first will be what? Commander. Chief, yeah commander of his troops and who did that? Joab, Joab yeah We've, we know all about Joab of course from our study in Samuel then in starting in verse 10 we go back a little ways um, we're, we're, getting, we're looking at a list of the of his mighty men. Now, this list is also in Samuel, but in Samuel, it's in an appendix at the end of the book of Second Samuel. But the chronicler loves lists; <laughs> he's not going to put this in, that, in an appendix. This is an important uh, issue, and and I think the main point that he's trying to get at in um, in this list is to show the the all these people were loyal to David, and and he had these wonderful, uh, amazingly. Uh, fighting, you know, strong fighting men on his side, and, and he and he gives occasional deeds that they did, which just they're, they're designed to inspire the descendants of these people. The, 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 this book was written for the people in the days of Ezra, who had come back from Babylon, who were just a little tiny group, discouraged and all that. And, and this is to remind them, you know, you know, be like your your ancestors. These people of courage. And so we have this one story down in verse fifteen. It says three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam. This is very early when David was running away from Saul. You know, we, we kind of jump around in this story, but this is very early when he was running away from Saul. While the army of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim, uh, David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. What do you know about Bethlehem connected with David? Jesus. Well, it's something more closely connected to David than that. David. David was born in Bethlehem. That was his hometown. I mean, when he was a shepherd boy and all that, it was in Bethlehem. And now he can't even go to Bethlehem because why? The Philistines are controlling it. 
And so he, he in verse 17 he says, Oh, that someone will give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Well, David drank, at, drank that water many, many times growing up. And, I mean, you know, I, I guess most of us know how it is, you know, when we think back on things. I mean, I don't know how much we think back on water we used to drink, but I'm sure we think back on certain foods we used to eat when we were kids. And, you know, we just imagine them as being wonderful. And the best thing is not to try to repeat it again. <laughs> it might not be as good. But David thinks this water is just, is just so wonderful, and, and he feels so bad he can't get to it. And these three guys are listening in, and, and, and they plan this surprise party for him. <laughs> They're going to get him this water, which is an incredibly dangerous thing for them to do. They broke through the, the Philistine ranks, got to the well, <laughs> drew, drew some water, Go back. They have to break through the ranks again to get back to him. And, and they come and, here you go, David. Water from Bethlehem. <laughs> and to our way of thinking, his reaction almost seems an insult, but it's not. Um, he wouldn't drink it. And think about... Now, none of us have had, I think, a lot of, it, of experience in, in gangs and all that. But if, if, you read, if you read anything about um, military people, especially somewhat, um, uh, what's the term, uh, not too formal, kind of ad hoc, you know, a group, say a group of, of people that have gone over and they're helping in some civil war. You had that back in Spain in the 30s. You've got that now over in Syria. I mean, you got these guys, just a bunch of young people who, who, who are tough, and they, they act tough, and they do crazy things. And nobody thinks anything of it. David's a leader of this gang of toughs. I mean, it's, it's several hundred people at this point. But he doesn't have the mentality that the, that these, these people typically have. His, his view is not, Oh, life's short. Let's you know have give it all the gusto we can. It's not that. He respects these people, even though that their lives are constantly in danger because because they're they're living by war. He respects the lives of his men, and he 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 realizes, even though he's the commander of them, he does not have the right, for the sake of a drink of water, to risk the lives of of, of his men. There's only one that he knows of who is worthy of that. And who is that? God. And so he's not pouring it out on the ground just like, you know, let's dump this out. He's offering it as a sacrifice to God. Only God is worthy of the great sacrifice these men made. They, they, at the risk of their lives, they went to get that water. That's, that's the most expensive water you can imagine. It's only worthy of God. And so he pours it out to God. And, and I, if you understand that, I think you'll understand that those men would not have felt insulted by that. They would have understood that David was valuing their gift the, the highest way it could, be, it could be valued. And I wish that we today could value things like that. To really understand some things are only worthy of God. And then other stories, um, I don't have any sp- others that I really wanted to mention, but these were great heroes, and, and they were in the service of David, the greatest king that they had in, in Israel. Then in chapter 12, 
Um, it says, now these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag. Now, again from Samuel, we don't... We, we know that there were people coming to David in Samuel. And, and in fact, it, it specifically says everyone that was oppressed or was in debt or was discontented went over and, got, and joined David. And when he was in the cave of Adullam, which I don't think I have a here, when he was in this cave of Adullam, he had 400. Later on, when he was at Ziklag, he had 600. Well, of course, that means 200 joined him in the meantime. And apparently this was happening rather regularly. And so... Um, in, in verse 1, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. And so these guys come, and, and it describes how great they were. Um, in verse 8, the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor, men trained for war who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the face of lions, and they were as swift as the gazelles on the mountains. I assume you understand. I mean, he's exaggerating. Obviously, nobody is as fast as a gazelle, but um, that's that's the way we talk to try to express, you know, how, how what a great athlete these people were. And then in verse fifteen, these are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing on its banks, which is an amazing feat with a whole group of, of army men to cross like that. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have Joshua to <laughs> tell the priests to put their feet in the water and get it to stop. And then David, um, then in verse 16, some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to him. And David was apparently nervous, saying, you know, these guys might not be on his side, especially if they're coming from Benjamin. But in fact, we read of people, even the relatives of Saul, joining David when he was running away from Saul. Um, and so he, he tells them, you know, look, are you on my side or not? And, and they gave this they, great answer, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you. And... and um, Again, the, the point here is the loyalty of David's followers and how David was was faithful to them and faithful in leading them in, in the way of God. Yeah. When we, when we get those numbers, 400 and 600, are those the men only again? Yes, they're just the men. Um, now, we do know that their wives are with them at least when they were at Ziklag. But yeah, it's just counting the, the soldiers. Um, and in, it summarized in verse 22, for day by day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. Um, so he, and, and so when David began as king of Judah, he already had an army, and that, that's part of the point. But then in verse 23, it goes on from there. Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. We just had this a chapter ago, and now we're coming back to it again. Uh, that's why I was saying the, the Chronicles is not necessarily in, or, in a chronological order. This is something that is not described in any kind of detail in Samuel. This is a big celebration. This is the coronation of David. And, and this is what I mean about changing the pace of it. When you read Samuel, you, know, you, you, you read one verse and, and, and he's on. You know, it's, it's over. You read this, and by the time you get done with it, you have some kind of a feel for the big celebration they had that just how many days I think they had like three days of celebration during this um, this coronation and and to get the pace at that level our author gives numbers <laughs> how many people came to him and and you know this is how many people came from Judah this is how many came from Levi this is um, 
uh, and names of you, this how many came from Benjamin of Saul's kinsman, from Ephraim in verse 30. All different numbers. Um, in, in verse 32, there were 200 chiefs. I don't know whether their, their soldiers under them came or not. Maybe we didn't have the count or, or whatever. From Zebulun, 50,000, and, and on like that. And it's, it's, by the time we finish the, the chapter, this is in, um, we're in chapter 12 of First Chronicles. By the time we finish the chapter, we, we have a, a f- more of a feel for what it would have been like to have been living there in Hebron at the time and, and see David uh, made the king and, and have three days of celebration with all these uh, military people with, with all their weapons and everything. Um, was, that a, was that our doorbell that just rang? No? Okay. Um, too many bells. <laughs> um, now, then in chapter 13, we come to the first really major point in, in David's reign. And, and again, this really fits what the chronicler is looking for when he's picking out details from the different reigns. What did David do in chapter 13, or at least tried to do? Yeah, he wanted to bring the ark back. Um, for years, decades in fact, it's been um, in, uh, where does it say? Kiriath Jerem. Um, I'm not sure if I've got Kiriath Jerem on the map. I don't think I do. Um, it's somewhere up up here in the northwest part of Judah. Um, it was basically where, where they left it after the Philistines sent it back. Remember they captured it. They sent it back on a cart and the cows just, they knew which way to go because God was guiding them and they took it back to Judah. And then after a, a bunch of guys died looking into the ark, which wasn't real smart because it was disrespecting God, um, then they just put it aside in, in, in someone's house. And finally, we, there is a king with enough leadership to say, we need to do something about this. We need to bring the ark. And he's not bringing the ark to the tabernacle. The tabernacle at that time was in Gibeon. David has better plans than that. He knows that Jerusalem is the new capital. It's also going to be where the tabernacle is, although he, in his lifetime, he does not do anything about the tabernacle in Gibeon. For, throughout David's reign, there were, there were two tabernacles and there were two high priests, one in Gibeon and one in Jerusalem. Um, and... But the one in Jerusalem, he, he built a tabernacle for it. And that's where the ark is going to be put. So in chapter 13, they, wor- they work at trying to get the ark there. They run into a problem. What is that? The oxen stumbled. The oxen stumbled, but that wasn't... The guy who reached out to steady it and yeah. was struck dead. Yeah. One of the sons who, who was from the house actually where they'd been taking care of this ark for years, he, he reached out to steady it. And he, he was struck dead for his disrespect. That reminds us of a story all the way back in the book of Leviticus. What was that? Yeah, yeah. when Nadab and Abihu brought, it, it brought strange fire before God and, and <clears throat> burned them up. Yeah, very similar. Same reason. We have to treat God as holy. This ark was the holiest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And if God had killed a bunch of people for looking into the ark earlier, He's not going to have much sympathy with someone who manhandles this ark. Besides which, God had specified how the ark was to be transported. What, how was that? On poles. On poles. So nobody ever touched the ark. You carried it on the poles. 
And who was the one that carried the poles? The priests. The priests, yeah. And so for a number of reasons, this this was not the way it was supposed to be done. And, and um, Uzzah died at that point. And in fact, they just stopped for three months. They didn't do anything more about the ark. Um, and the chronicler then goes off with a with a detour, and I and maybe the history that happened in chapter fourteen happened in between, and then in chapter fifteen he's going to come back to it. In chapter fourteen, we have a battle with the Philistines. Um, we had this in Samuel as well, uh, and um, the reason I think the chronicler puts it in here is it it so well illustrates the faith of David and how he works with God. The first time the, the Philistines attacked, he inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? God said yes, and you'll get the victory, and he, he beat them. The second time they come up again, and unlike what a lot of us would have done, we would have said, well, you know, God gave me the victory the first time, time to go out again. God doesn't necessarily do things the same way twice. He asks God again, and God says, this time, you go around behind and wait until you hear this sound in the tre- treetops. When you hear that sound, I've already gone and defeated them, and then you can take over. And it worked out just like um, God had predicted. The other point of the story, the first time when he conquered the Philistines, the Philistines abandoned something behind. What was that? Their idols. What did David say to do about it? Burn them up. Burn them up, yeah. That was commanded in the law back when we were studying uh, Deuteronomy. They were supposed to do that. But we're going to find out later in Chronicles that the other kings, the descendants of David, didn't always do that. And it, was, it worked out pretty badly for them. So in chapter 15 then, we're back. Three months is done, and David has now found out by doing the proper homework how to carry the ark. No, verse 2, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and minister to Him forever. So they gather together and... Again, the chronicler gives us numbers and names of all these different people that are there for this this great service. And they um, they only go a few steps when they sacrifice. I don't, I don't remember if it says that here. That may be I may be getting that from from Psalms, but in this particular case, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen which would have been what ordinary priests would have wear, worn, a white robe. Um, he was not in his royal robes. He, he, was, he was trying to minister to God in a spiritual sense, not, not as a king. And they had all these musicians there, and David was dancing, and, and then who despised him? Yeah, Michael, the daughter of Saul. And, I, and notice the emphasis, the daughter of Saul. Her attitude is the attitude of her father, really. She, she thinks that her husband is not maintaining the proper respectability by not dressing like a king at this, at this affair. He's dressing like an ordinary priest. Um, and in, in, in Samuel, it goes into a little bit more detail, but um, David basically says, I did it for God. <laughs> and that really summarizes David's life very well. So in chapter 16, then God, I mean, David makes a tent for the ark in, which I assume was modeled after the tabernacle, um, in Jerusalem. And then we have a first um, in verse seven. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. 
Now, that's not the first time anyone's given thanks to God. That's not what this is saying. These guys now, though, have a permanent position. These are Levites. And this particular family, Asaph, in fact, wrote a a number of our psalms. Uh, He and his relatives now have this official job of doing public um, thanksgiving to God at the tabernacle. This included singing. I'm sure it included chanting. Um, when, when the people would go up to the tabernacle, these people would be there uh, in an official capacity uh, doing this kind of, of um, praise to God. And we have an example here in the rest of the chapter of one of these psalms. I assume David wrote this. Um, the, this would be the sort of thing that they would be chanting in the, ta- in, the, in the tabernacle. And I want to go through this psalm briefly. It, Edersheim divides it into eight stanzas. And, I, and I've got a nice overhead on this. <laughs> but I might as well turn this off because we're not going to see it on this screen. Um, overhead being at home. So, the first, verses 8 through 11 is praise of God and his wonders. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. Then, verses 12 through 14, remembrance of God's great deeds. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done. His marvels and the judgments from His mouth. O seed of Israel, His servant, sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Then verses 15-18, through remembrance of God's covenant and its promises. The covenant is going to be a very important thing in in this entire psalm. Remember His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. Then, verses 19-22 through are the record of the gracious fulfillment of the covenant. When they were only a few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them. And he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Then, verses 23-27, Edersheim calls this missionary. (laughs) I've called it, Tell everyone about it. Um, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. And then verses 28-30 is the universal kingdom of God. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before Him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Verses 31-33, through The reign of God on earth. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord for He is coming to judge the earth. And finally, thanksgiving to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So you could just imagine the drama of of being in that place when they brought the... the, the, uh, Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle and Asaph and his relatives sang this psalm to the people and all the people at the end said, Amen. Next time we'll do another seven or eight chapters. Oh, let me mention, this next week is the last week on this sheet of paper that you have. In the vestibule is a new set of sheets, page two. So grab that and that'll that'll take us through February. All right, appreciate everyone's help this morning.